Well She Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. My guests on the show today are Amy Plumley and Jean Van Hall. Amy Plumley is passionate about teaching children to sew. She's a second grade teacher and the co-author of two books, Sewing School, 21 Sewing Projects Kids Will Love to Make, and Sewing School 2, Lessons in Machine Sewing, both published by Story. Amy co-founded a popular sewing school day camp and oversees a sewing after-school program. She lives in Memphis, Tennessee with her husband, two children, and a dog named Tug. Amy Plumley, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Jean Van Hall is passionate about children's art and creativity. On her blog, The Artful Parent, Jean shares ideas, information, and inspiration to encourage you to enjoy and share art with the kids in your life, whether in your home or your classroom. Jean's first book, The Artful Parent, was published by Roost in 2013. Her second book, The Artful Year, will come out in February of 2015. Jean lives with her husband and two daughters in the mountains of Western North Carolina. Jean Van Hall, welcome. So glad to be here. Yay. So I'm excited to talk with both of you today about making art and craft with children. So um, let's start with you, Amy. I know you teach elementary school. What gave you the idea to teach kids to sew, and how did you learn to sew? Well, I've been sewing uh, the longest I can re- as long as I can remember, and so I still sew today for myself and for my family. And um, I went into teaching kind of as a second career because I wanted to do something creative, but I also knew I was wanting to have a family, and I wanted something that was kind of stable. And as soon as I started teaching kindergarten, I'm lucky to work at a school that kind of allows me to kind of put things into the curriculum as I see fit. And I started to realize, oh, I think we can sew here. And so we started by making just really simple, like little stuffed animals, um, just little pouches and purses and things like that. And as I continued to sew with kids, I started to develop tools that worked better for them. The very beginning, I was using like really skinny, sharp needles and I was, you know, trying to like, um, take apart embroidery thread, you know, they come in six strands and making them three. And the kids, I would have a line of like 15 kids waiting to get a needle from me. And it was, that was kind of stressful. And as I've gone along, I've developed all the, I've developed tools that work for kids that puts them in the creative position, allows them to have some independence in sewing. And it kind of has all blossomed from, from there, I guess. Okay. So um, I want to hear a little bit more um, about, what sort of methods you ended up adopting that worked better because I have taught, um, well, I've taught my own kids to sew, but I've also taught Girl Scout troops, um, locally just where I live, just because people know me as like the sewing teacher. And so I get asked sometimes to teach, you know, Girl Scout troops, they do like a sewing badge. And so I come in and teach them and, um, and you're right that if you bring in the little needles, <laughs> um, and then the thread always falls off the needle, yep. um, because, you know, yeah. And so that becomes a problem. And there's lots of knots also, you know, everything gets tied in a knot. Um, and yeah, the, all kinds of, uh, issues you run into really quickly. And so, so tell us like a couple of really good tips that you've developed to make all of that process go smoothly. Yeah, well, I think when I'm sewing, I'll first I'll talk about the tools. So I think the tools are key for me, especially when you're talking about younger children sewing. So I use Chanel number two needles, which are still sharp, but they're a little bit thicker. So little hands can grip them. So it's and, a, sorry to interrupt. That's a chenille needle? Yeah. Okay. 
Number 22. Number 22. Okay. And um, then I use craft thread, which is what is sold in packages, I think, to um, make like friendship bracelets with. And you can buy those, both those things, like any box kind of um, retail craft store. Okay. And this craft thread, it kind of looks like embroidery floss in that it's kind of in those same kind of skeins, right? Where it's got like a little band at the top and a little band at the bottom and it comes in like a rainbow pack, but it's different from embroidery floss. So how is it different? It doesn't, it doesn't, um, it's non-divisible. So you can't break it up into strands. It's like pearl cotton, okay. um, which, um, I like to do embroidery with as well. Um, but it's a little bit thicker and you do have to, I do take it off of the skeins and I put it onto like a little paper bobbin just so that the kids can, um, it gets tangled. Yeah. Cause it gets tangled really quick. And my husband laughs at me cause I have done hundreds of them in the car. Like as we're riding around, like I have my little stash and he's like, I've watched you, um, you know, wind probably thousands of bobbins. Totally. So, so it's like my habit. <laughs> so when you, so you, you're pre, you're sort of, are you pre-threading the chenille needles for them? Not at first I might, but I do try really quickly to teach them how to thread a needle. And I use the low rand needle threader, which is a metal needle threader that doesn't have like that little wire part on it. It has a little hook, a little wire hook that fits through the needle eye really easily. And then you can grab the thread on the other side and pull it out. Got it. And once kids learn how to do that, which they can usually learn in kindergarten, I've been able to teach kids. It's like magic. It's like a whole new world has opened up for them for sewing because they no longer need an adult to help them to sew anymore. And, um, they're just off and running. So, so do you, sorry, do you, um, not, so do you have them make a doubled length of the thread and not the end? So it doesn't fall off the needle or do you just have it one, you know, not on the end, a single length of thread. And then when it falls off the needle, you just have them re-thread the needle and they learn quickly how to make it like sort of hold the eye when they're sewing so it doesn't fall off. You got it. Yeah. So I just, we do a knot at one end. I think the double thickness is too thick, especially because I'm sewing a lot with like um, felt. It just gets to be too thick. So, um, and the thread is thicker. We talk a lot about pinching the, the needle. So as they poke it through, I tell them to pinch at the eye and then pull. And after a couple of times, you're right. Once they kind of realize that it keeps falling off, they get frustrated and then they'll take the time to move their finger down and pinch it and pull. Right. And if they have that needle threader there, they can fix it themselves too, which is hugely helpful, but it's still a little bit of a pain because it kind of slows them down. And so they want to, to develop a technique that makes it so it doesn't fall off because that is a big issue, <laughs> falling off the, the needle. Um, that, you're right. And yeah. I think totally, you totally get it. I think if you're giving the kids the tools and you're kind of putting them in the position of you need to do this yourself, um, they'll figure that out. There's always one or two that I'm helping through the entire process. And that's okay. But I sew with like 50 kids at a time sometimes. So I need them to be independent. And I can handle three or four that need my assistance, but the rest of them don't want to wait for me. And do you so they have, yeah, I bet they don't. Um, do you have like a 
first project that you sort of have everybody go through? Because I also teach an adult sewing class here locally at a sewing school, and it's actually, I'm the only adult instructor. So the rest of the time, that sewing school is all for kids. And my kids have gone there too. And, um, and so I know that there's like this one project she has everybody do first, sort of as like a, almost like a training project. So do you have like a first project that you have everybody kind of start with? And then do you let them kind of go from there and choose their own thing? Or is everybody working on the same thing at the same time? I usually I start every session of my camp out and club with the project. It differs because I have a lot of repeat customers, so I can't do the same project every time. But my favorite start starting project is my stuffy, and um, it's in the first sewing school book. And you draw your own picture on a piece of muslin with mag with markers or fabric markers or crayons, and then you turn it into like basically a pillow. And I love that project because it really immediately allows those kids to be creative. Um, it's immediate success. They love whatever they make. And it just gives them a chance to really practice their stitches and they want to, you know, and, and how to stuff something because a lot of kids like to stuff. So that's my favorite starting project. But I do, every time I do a, um, a class, or like I start a session up for my sewing club, I always have a, this is the first project we're all doing. I call it a have to. And then after that, I do open it up to whatever they want to make. I usually have projects um, and examples of things, ideas, but then I will let them take it further. And I like to call my projects in the book blank slates because they're very simple. They're very easy um, but I hope that what they do is allow a lot of creativity. So I love to see a kid take a project and turn it up on its head and do something completely different, but they're using the same pattern and ideas. Right, right, right. So let's actually talk a little bit more about your books. So you you, bo- you wrote both of them with your um, partner in crime, and- Andrea Lyle. Is that how you yes. say her name? Lyle, okay. Yes. Um, and on my, I have both books. My kids and I have made many of the projects from both of them. And in fact, there's a photo in the second book of an adult sewing machine set up and then a child's sewing machine set up right next to it, um, you know, sort of at a lower table with their own kind of stuff right next to it. And I sat, when I first got your second book, I sat and stared at that photo for so long. And it was like a light bulb went off and I immediately ordered my kids their own sewing machine and set it up. Like we went and got a table and I set it up right next to mine and that's where it is now. And they will go up there completely on their own and they have their own fabric stash and they will make stuff. Um, And I just think it's so great. So that was a huge revelation to me. So thank you for that photo that's in there. Um, (laughs) So tell us a little bit about sort of the two books and what's in them and how they're different from one another. Thanks. Oh, I love your story, by the way. That's actually my craft room. So that's what's in my house right now. Also, um, and that's my daughter sewing machine. So, but, um, the books kind of came about because my friend Andrea and I were teaching a camp. My camp got a little bit bigger for me just to handle by myself. So I, I um, got her to help me. And at the time she was a freelance writer. So she had lots of free time on her hands in a, in a schedule that was very flexible. And so we were making We had this camp. We were coming up with designs. We were coming up with ideas kind of based on what the kids wanted. Um, 
And we were also looking around at the same time for, are there other patterns? Are there books out there that can help us guide us through these camps? And we couldn't find anything that we liked. Um, so one day I looked at her. I was like, you know what we need to do? And she answered my question, or answered my sentence by saying, write a book, and kind of the rest is history. Um, it did take us about two years to write our proposal, though, because in the meantime, I got pregnant again, and she had some things going on in her life, but we finally got it together, and um, we're just thrilled to work with Story. Um, at that time, they we kind of targeted them because they were really coming out with some beautiful crafting books, and we wanted our book to look like those the modern Japanese cool craft books that we were reading and we wanted that for children. And we really wanted it to be aesthetically pleasing. That was our biggest complaint with a lot of children's sewing books at the time is they were kind of silly. They were cartoony. Um, and there were nothing that I would want to read. Um, so the first book mostly focuses on hand sewing. Um, all of the projects were kid tested in our um, camps. Um, a lot of them were inspired by kids, and um, all the kids that you see are kids that either came to my camp or I taught in my classroom in the book. And then um, about a year later, we had a lot of people emailing us like they wanted more machine sewing. They wanted to see, you know, their kids were really wanting to sew with machines. And about that time, I was doing more machine sewing. Um, with students and kids, and my own daughter was sewing in a sewing machine. So I started to feel more comfortable with that. And so we started to develop patterns that went along with that book as well and um, pretty much made it exactly the same process of um, one-on-one shooting. the. We had an amazing photographer, Justin Burke, and he just really um, worked well with the kids and um, was there for every step of the way for the book with us. I think having a great photographer for a kid's sewing book is really important to achieving that aesthetic that you are looking for, where it is sophisticated, it is going to be appealing to the adults who are working with, you know, if it's their child or if it's in an after-school program or a Girl Scout troop or whatever, it's going to be appealing to both adults and kids. It's not just sort of, as you said, sort of silly, but it's actually a really beautiful book, too. Um, so, and I think that having the, the photographer and the designer, you know, have that sophisticated eye is really important. And Story did a great job with both of your books. So congratulations to you on both of them. I, I Thank really you. think you, you added to the, the resources available for people like me who, <laughs> who needed something like this. So they're really super. Um, and I love how well tested they are, you know, that they really were tested by and used by real kids in a real environment and not just like a designer coming up with them and thinking they might be fun for kids, but not actually testing them with lots of different kids. So no, I thank you. And I, I think, um, too, what's interesting is trying to figure out the whole pattern making process with kids. Um, you know, I was thinking about that when I was thinking about what to talk about today and making patterns for children and making patterns for adults is a vastly different thing. Like I've even taken some of your patterns, Abby, and kind of was like, I really like that, but the kid's not gonna be able to figure that out. So how can I make that simple? Or like every single one of my patterns is um, symmetrical because it has to be. Um, and that way a kid can flip it over. It doesn't matter which side of the paper, which side of the pattern they trace it on or the fabric, it's going to work. Um, so I've learned a lot of these like tool, like just little tips, I think, um, as I've gone along. Yeah, because what can happen is 
you know, the, the kids are really excited and they're working there, you know, working on it and they get three quarters of the way done and then they come up and show you and it's because like the pattern wasn't symmetrical, for example, it's flipped the wrong yes. way <laughs> or the two pieces don't line up or, you know, um, the, the, the wrong side of the fabric is facing out or you know, whatever. Um, so yeah, you do over time develop those little tricks to say, okay, if I design the pattern in this more simple way, the finished product will be easier to get to and just as cute. Yes. So it's a lot of it. Yeah, totally. Um, all right, Jean, I want to turn to you. I have been reading your blog, the artful parent for so many years and, I feel like I've watched your daughters, Maya and Daphne, grow up and make um, countless sun catchers with you. (laughs) (laughs) And um, I I always look forward to just the glimpses into your home and your cherry pie making and your beanpole teepee in your garden and all of the things. I feel like I I know you through your blog. So um, for me, your blog makes making art with children just feel really approachable. Um, and I wondered what kind of work you did before you had kids and if you ever expected to become so fascinated with making art with kids. Well, thank you, Abby, first for um, uh, your words of, of welcome and, and talking about how you feel like you know my my kids and my family and... and um, I really do try to make art approachable. Um, that's, I kind of feel like that's my thing. Um, as far as my background, um, I never fi- figured this in my, into my life. I never saw this in my future. I loved art um, always growing up. Um, I loved making art. I studied art in college. Um, I worked in the art field after college, but never thought of myself um, as an art teacher for children or um, any, anything along those lines. It just developed over time. So um, I know you went to Wellesley because I live in Wellesley, and we've talked about this before. So <laughs> were you an art major at Wellesley? I was, yes. Okay. Art history and studio art. Okay. Okay, great. And they have a really good program. So, And so what kind of uh, like work, you said you worked in an art-based field after, after college, well, my first job out of college was working at the Boston Museum of Fine Arts. Um, I worked there as a preparator in the um, matting and framing um, artworks on paper and helping to put up exhibitions at the museum. Um, I also worked at an online um, art and antique site and then at the Catalog of Antiques and Fine Art, which is now... Um, named something a little bit different. I think it's just Antiques and Fine Art, um, an art magazine. Okay. Wow. So that's so interesting. So all of these things are kind of related to, but quite different from what you do now. Did you ever consider becoming a teacher? I don't think that it suits my personality. I I really like um, sharing art in the way that I do, doing it um, in small groups or just with my children, and then writing about it, writing about it on my blog, writing about it in um, magazine articles, writing about it um, on social media or um, in, in my books. I feel like that way I get to share it in the way that I think reaches the most people and um, also suits my more introverted personality. (laughs) 
Yeah, and I love, I mean, I think you're, you're really observant about the way that the project develops with kids. So, you know, you'll talk about a particular project or materials that you set out for, for your children, you know, and they'll work on it in one way. And then, you know, it starts to sort of morph into something else where, you know, you'll put out shaving cream and paint, for example, and they'll start out, you know, doing sort of the project that you thought that they would first like doing. And then they start, you know, painting it on their arms and then on their feet and they start making footprints and handprints. And, you know, so it sort of morphs into something different and then they add a different uh, material to it. And then it becomes even, you know, a third thing. So, and I think you're very, um, well, first you're brave in allowing them to sort of (laughs) get along their own lines um, which I think Amy also pointed to, but you're, but you're also very observant in sort of seeing how they perceive it and what their next idea is. Well, thank you. I do believe in process-oriented art and seeing where the art materials and um, techniques and the ideas that the kids have and wh- where it can all take us. And art is not a static thing at all. Kids' art, definitely not so. No no one's art is. Um, and there's just, it's an infinite mix and match world out there. There's so many possibilities. And I like, I like keeping that open. Yeah. What do you say to, and I'm sure you run into this sometimes with blog readers, probably. What do you say to parents who who are like, well, I myself am not good at art, and so I don't feel comfortable, you know, doing this with my kids. Like my husband, I mean, he actually is quite good at art and has a great eye, but he feels like he's not good at art. And so if there's Play-Doh out or watercolors out, he sort of shies away, like that's mommy's thing, you know, because he just doesn't have that level of comfort with the materials. So if you're the primary caregiver, though, of the children, you know, the stay-at-home mom or the stay-at-home dad, and you want to bring this, you know, into their day-to-day lives, but you just don't feel comfortable with art materials yourself, um, how do you approach that? Well, I, I want to say to everyone out there who feels that way, you don't have to feel like you are great at art in order to offer art opportunities to your kids. Um, you can just approach it in a childlike way. You can put out the most simple art materials, just make the art materials available, um, Play-Doh, crayons, markers, paper, and um, make them available to your kids. You don't have to have a degree in studio art in order to, to give them the, the materials they need, and they don't need instruction necessarily. They might need a little bit of guidance, a little bit of encouragement, um, but you don't have to be great at art or to feel that you are great at art in order to give them what they need um, to be artists and to grow creatively themselves. Um, what I like to suggest to parents is to sit down next to your kid. Get this, If you set out paper and markers for your child, sit down next to them. Get a piece of paper yourself, um, doodle, just whatever. Fill the, fill the paper with, with color, anything, and just explore. Um, just think of it as the process, not the product. It's the same way I... I think of it um, for kids. I think parents can explore art that way too, and it it's um, 
it can be healing. It can be, um, it can give you confidence. And it, it can be a lot of fun. And it can be a way to connect with your kids also. And I think sometimes, you know, kids' materials are really kind of humble. You know, you can buy a 49-cent pack of crayons and a piece of, you know, computer paper. So it's nothing, it's not like a beautiful sketchbook and, you know, expensive pastels or something like that. And so sometimes that barrier, just having sort of humble materials that are easy to throw away if you mess up or whatever, can help parents kind of just jump in and make a line and, you know, not worry so much. Right, exactly. And I think simple simple is great. Simpler is better. The the simple materials, the simple art activities, um, there is so much that you can do with them. Yeah. Let's let's turn to your book, The Artful Parent. So what kinds of um what kinds of activities will we find in there to sort of guide us through this process? Um, in the Artful Parent there are lots and lots of fun activities, um, art activities, um, all different kinds, painting activities, drawing games, collage, um, all those sun catchers that we love. Um, uh, um, just acti- more than enough, I think, to, to keep any kid or any family creating um, and a lot of these activities, like um, marble rolling, rolling um, paint-covered marbles around on paper, or um, sun catchers, you can do over and over. You can do it in lots of different ways. Um, and I don't think kids don't seem to get tired of them. There, there are always different variations of them, or the children come at them at different times in their lives, or when they have different ideas going on in their heads, and so they might approach it a little bit differently. Um, there are a lot of ba- really basic art activities that, um, depending on what's going on in, in your life and, and what colors you're interested in and in and what materials you are using, you can do it in so many different ways. Yeah, so you can come back and do those same activities again. Mm-hmm. Totally. That's right. Um, all right, I want to talk a little bit about um, setting up an area for kids to sew or for kids to make art, whether it's at home or in an after-school setting or a club setting, that kind of thing. Because I think one of the big fears we face sometimes as adults is the mess, right? Like when you think about, you know, the house is tidy, the kids are at school, they're going to come home. And if I set out this, you know, art or craft or sewing experience for them, we're going to just have glitter and paint and uncapped markers and scissors and spills and ruined clothes or whatever, right? There's that sort of fear of mess. So, even if we have really good intentions to make art with children, sometimes just that thought can kind of feel overwhelming. So I wanted to kind of touch on that and think about how you approach either keeping things tidy or setting up systems so that the kids can themselves keep things tidy or tidy up easily at the end or just kind of let go during the process and let the mess be there um, within constraint, obviously. So, Amy, do you have tips from your experience about constraining the mess? I mean, if you're sewing with 50 kids, right, there must be some good systems in place. I try. <laughs> 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 but 
But as you were describing that best, I was thinking about my husband, who is like deathly afraid, I think, of our my creative family um, going crazy. But um, I do. I have like different when I'm especially I'm setting up a room, I have the supplies if I'm working with a class in different areas of the room. So it's, they don't all bunch up together and I'll have like, this is the needle threading station. This is the stuffing station. You know, this is where the felt fabric goes, that kind of thing. Um, at my home, I have, um, Next to my sewing machine is my daughter's sewing machine. And underneath that, she has a big old bin. And in the bin is where she keeps her fabric and stuff like that. And I guess it's kind of messy, but she just shoves it in there and then we can push it under. And she has her little sewing box that she can keep her tools and her threads and things like that in. So I think giving kids their own, especially sewers, having their own sewing box, having their own like bin to keep their own fabric in, um, really helps them to have that sense of independence. This is mine. I need to take care of it. I'm not going to share my scissors with my daughter. And she knows that. Like, scissors are gold to me, right? So she keeps her own scissors in her own box. And I think that having that system kind of set up at the beginning helps us a lot. Yeah, definitely. I have a similar system set up, and I agree with you. They have their own scissors. <laughs> um, and so, Jean, what about you? I know you have like a little a studio sort of set up in your home. I don't know. Is it is it like where your laundry room is? I can't quite remember. Yes, yes. Um, we have a really a rather large laundry room, and we turned it into our art studio. And the laundry is still in there, um, but they play together well. Um, the the floor is a cement floor that we painted over, so I don't worry about the messes back there quite so much. But I n- also know that lots of people don't have um, a whole room that they dedicate to art, and um, and we have done art lots of different places. We actually don't do the majority of our art back there. We do the majority of our art just at our kitchen table, and um, sometimes I'll lay down a. a a waterproof tablecloth. I'll just get um, a cheap one at the dollar store. Um, and that works out really well for protecting the table from messes. Uh, we also use art mats, these large plastic um, art mats that I love um, that I've bought from Discount School Supply. And they help to contain the mess also. Plus, there are so many art activities that aren't actually all that messy. Um, and sometimes we do art outside. Uh, you can do art in the kitchen where it's generally easier to, to clean up or, um, or in, the, you know, in the bathtub. You can do painting in the bathtub. There are lots of ways to get around the mess issue. And, of course, in the summer when the weather is nice, you can, you can do a lot, um, a lot more outside. It's, it gets harder when, when the weather is not so nice. Yeah, and you guys both live in the south. In comparison to me, where the weather is not nice, I feel like 11 months. <laughs> Maybe not 11, but... I have lived there, so... Yeah. <laughs> We're inside where it's cold for a long time, so we definitely struggle with that. But um, one of the other things I think that can be hard to manage with um, with kids, with my own kids, is frustration. Um, so my eldest daughter is 10, and she is incredibly imaginative. She's like a natural storyteller. She's got a million ideas but she also just gets frustrated, really frustrated, um, easily and quickly. And so like if, if she's trying to stick a pipe cleaner on something and it won't stick or 
she's, you know, trying to thread the needle and it's unthreaded. She just gets so frustrated. And then she's also recently started saying, she said to me the other day, she said, I'm not good at art. And I was like, ah, no, you know, like heartbroken um, because she's going to like an arts-based camp. And there's some kids at this camp who are, you know, really gifted, but they're also older than she is. Um, But, you know, that at 10, I feel like that kind of self-consciousness starts to creep in. So I wanted to sort of think about managing frustration with kids and art making and craft making and also self-doubt, which I think starts to to affect kids as they get a little bit older. So Jean, do you have thoughts about either of those things? Um, I think that's a difficult question and um, I would take it on a case by case scenario with, with children. Everyone's so different, but I would also suggest um, talking about and looking at art that is, there's so many different kinds of art there is art that, um, you know, extreme realism. And then there is art that is, ex- you know, very abstract. And neither is better than the other. Um, there is art that's mostly about colors and how they interact. And there's art that is um, more about design. There, there are so many different kinds of art that someone who, who looks at at their um, the kids sitting next to them and watches them draw a very realistic scene might get frustrated with their own drawing ability, but if if they thought of themselves as as an artist, um, uh, realized how many different kinds of art there are and and what they enjoy and 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 what is possible then maybe they wouldn't get as frustrated. Another um, thing I would suggest is getting a, um, a copy of the book Beautiful Oops. Um, and also The Dot is a good one. All, all of, all of um, Peter Reynolds' books are for um, self-confidence in, in creativity. I love and, that title, Beautiful Oops. That's great. Yeah. Mm. I'll have to check that one out. I'll, um, I'll try to link it. It's good for, for kids and for adults, I think. I bet. Yeah, totally. Um, because so many great things really, I mean, as a, as a designer, a pattern designer, I feel like so many great things come from those mistakes. Um, you know, like some of the most brilliant things come from like an accident, you know? Right. Right. Totally. And, um, Amy, do you have any thoughts about like, I'm sure you, I mean, you run into all kinds of learners as a teacher. So, you know, I'm sure there are kids who are like my daughter who get really frustrated really quickly. Um, So what kinds of, you know, things do you do to sort of help them to regroup? Well, it's so funny that Jean mentioned Beautiful Oops, because that was immediately put into my head, because I I adore that book as well, Jean. Um, And I use that a lot in my class. But my mantra in my classroom for both sewing and in my teacher life is nothing has to be perfect. Just do your best. And I repeat that a lot in my class and it's written really big on my wall. And, um, I think that reminding kids that, you know, nothing has to be perfect. Mistakes are okay. How can you use this mistake to turn it into something cool? And when somebody does do that, we celebrate that and we show it off like, wow, this person had a big hole, but then look how they fixed it. Or one arm didn't 
only they ended up only having one arm, you know, but now they have a one arm monster, you know, so you can kind of um, play with that and show kids and celebrate that um, unexpectedness that sometimes happens when we're creating. Um, it didn't turn out like it looks in my head. Um, but now I have this and it's pretty cool too. Um, so I do a lot of that with kids and I try not to let them restart again and again and again, you know, maybe once or twice or, you know, especially if they're old enough, let's, you know, we'll take out the stitches and that kind of thing and learn how not to do that again. But if it's something that can be tweaked, I really encourage them to tweak. Um, cause I think especially what's happening to your daughter, it's happening to mine too. She's going into fourth grade and she suddenly is becoming that self-consciousness. She doesn't have that freedom that she used to have in just her thoughts and the way she just doesn't care anymore. Right. And I'm like, no, don't lose that part of you because, and, and I think that's where a lot of the sewing school, um, the way the projects are designed and the way they kind of look comes from wanting to hang on to that creativity of a child, that sense of you can make this be whatever you want it to be. It doesn't have to look like mine because that stresses me out. Even, you know, looking at my own craft, looking at other craft books and I want to make that dress, but mine doesn't quite look like that, you know, and you start to compare yourself to what other people are doing either around you or professionally um, so I really wanted kids to get that sense of you can do what you want. Um, in the sewing books, we have a make it yours section for every project. And all of those are examples that kids made um, where they took the project and changed it. And I think that that is very freeing for kids. Like, yeah, I know it says, you know, for them to read the directions and be like, yeah, I know it says to do that, but I don't want to do that. I want to add a button instead, or I want to close this with Velcro and to allow them to play around with that. Yeah, totally. And as an adult following directions, that's actually sort of the way I do it too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Like, okay, yeah, but I'm going to do it upside down because I like it this way better. (laughs) So... Um, all right. So I want to, um, to dive into our list of recommendations. I've asked both of you to pull together a list of things that you're enjoying right now. And I've pulled together my list too. So, um, Amy, we'll start with you. And you wanted to talk about something from the small object, which is a, um, small handmade business by Sarah Newberger. Yes, I love the small object. I've been a big fan for years, and hopefully everyone already knows about it, but just in case they don't, um, their little needle cases, are prob- it's, that's one of my most prized possessions. Like, I love her little um, little needle case, and I take it around with me all the, all the time. Um, but she also has just such great, cute stamps. You can make, get a stamp that looks like you. It's kind of amazing, but it's drawn with Sarah's cute little drawings. Um, I don't know. It just makes me really happy to go to her website and find things. Um, and they make really cute gifts and they're kind of unexpected, I think. So So her needle case, it's almost like a wooden tube, right? Yes. It's kind of like a toothpick holder or right. something like that. Right. Um, but it, it just... You know, I have needles stuck in pincushions like all over the place, but this is just so perfect for carrying around with you, especially if you're traveling um, or like even if you're traveling like from your upstairs to your downstairs to sew, which I do a lot. 
just to kind of keep them all tidy and together. And it, there's just something magical about opening it up and you know, pouring out a little needle for myself. So one of the things that she makes that I love are her celebration candles. So they look like, um, it's almost like a a clothespin sort of, but it has a pick at the bottom and she's made it look like a little kid and with little fabric outfit and everything, but it's totally painted and then sealed and has a hole in top of the head where you can put a birthday candle. So you can put it into a cupcake or you can get a bunch of them and put them into a cake. And it's, they're so adorable. I just think that would be such a special thing to have as a tradition for your birthday. Um, so the celebration candles are really cute too. So it's a good pick. Um, Jean, you wanted to talk about liquid watercolors. I have to say, I don't have these. I'm interested to hear about them. Oh, no, you must get liquid watercolors. <laughs> uh, we have loved liquid watercolors for so many years now. And if I had to choose one art material, it would probably be liquid art materials. I mean, liquid watercolors. Um, they are vi- uh, vibrant. The color is very vibrant. Um, they're easy to use. Whereas, uh, you know, the the watercolor cakes in a tin can be a little difficult for younger children, especially, um, who might want to dip their, their paintbrush in one color and then another and then another until it's all one big muddy mess, which, um, you know, is okay for experimenting, but doesn't end up... Um, it's just not as easy to use. So liquid watercolors are easy to use and colorful. We use them straight up just for painting. We use them for watercolor resist art projects. Um, salty watercolors is one of our favorite art activities. On it, it works on paper. It works on. They work on wood. They work on coffee filters. They work on canvas. They work on 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 so much and for so many different kinds of art activities and even for science. We use them for um, this ice melting um, experiment that we do, um, milky fireworks, painted daisies, there's shaving cream um, marbling. There's just so much that you can do with liquid watercolors um, that we love them. (laughs) So when you buy them, do they come in a tube? Do they come in a a jar? Like what what does it look like? Um. I buy ours from Discount School Supply, but I think they, they're pretty standard. Um, there are other brands out there. Um, they come in, it's, it's, it's not a tube like the, the paste that you mix with water. It's, it's, a, um, it's like a paint, I'm, I want to say jar. It has a, but that's not quite the right word. So it's um, maybe like a squeeze jar? Right, okay. exactly, yeah. Okay, so, like a bottle. Yeah, a bottle. So I'll squeeze them into a cup, um, and then we'll use it from the cup. Or, or I get this little um, six cups in a base, and I can put uh, with little cups, and I'll put some liquid watercolor of each color in each of those little cups, and then we can use them that way. And do you have and to either... mix water into them? Or... No, you don't. That's that's the good thing about them is that they are ready to go um, when they arrive. That they're all set. And you can use them as is. You can water them down if you like. If you want a, a lighter color or if you want them to last longer, you can you can water them down, and that's fine. But you don't have to. 
they're all set. So. Tell us about, because I, um, I, I love it, the, the salty watercolors, because I think, first of all, it has an intriguing name, and also I know it's one of your favorite things to do. So, um, And your kids are often like, let's just add some salt to any other project. <laughs> so how, do, how does that work, and like, why does it work? Okay, so um, it, just adding salt to watercolors is lots of fun because the salt crystals absorb the water around it, and it creates a pattern and concentrates the watercolors in different areas. So that's that's beautiful. Salty watercolors is something, it's uh, the name of an art project that we do where we take a glue bottle, um, like an Elmer, a bottle of Elmer's glue or something, and squeeze out a picture on a piece of um, watercolor paper or cardstock or something. Um, either you can do a face or you can do something abstract, whatever. And then then you sprinkle salt over the top of that glue to completely cover the glue. And then what you do is you take a paintbrush and dip it in your watercolors, in your liquid watercolors, and then touch it, just touch it gently to one of those salt-covered glue lines. And the, the paint travels along, and it's just so cool to watch. Kids love it. I love it. Everyone loves it. And then um, it dries and, and looks looks cool too, but the actually watching the, the paint travel along the salt-covered glue lines is a lot of fun okay, for kids. so does the glue have to be dry first? It doesn't. No, we've done it both ways. Um, usually we don't have the patience to wait for it to dry. <laughs> we right. just do it right away, and it works just fine. Okay, cool. And um, just to go back to the initial one, you paint a watercolor painting, and then you sprinkle salt on top, and then it, it kind of pulls the color into the salt right. crystals, and that right. makes the yeah. sort of interesting patterns on the paper. Yeah. And yeah, exactly. And we do it with different kinds of salt. You know, you can buy fine salt, like the cheap Morton salt, or you can use um, kosher salt or um, sea salt. It, it, and it works differently with different sizes and types of salt mm-hmm. crystals, That's which so is neat. a lot. Yeah, so neat and very process-based because, I mean, the product is going to be pretty too, but the process of watching what the salt does is almost like a science project in and of itself. Exactly, and science and art go together so well. There's there's so much overlap. Yeah, that's neat. I think my middle daughter would love that. She's kind of really interested in science, so... Um, I so okay. One of my uh, my recommendations are stickers that are um, are eyes. Okay, so <laughs> we have this sheet of stickers, and they're they're all they are are eyes, and they're black, you know, line drawings of eyes, and that's all that's on the sticker sheet. And um, I kind of save it. We we have a big box of stickers, and the kids can use them all the time. And they use them for all sorts of things. But I kind of save the eyes for a specific project. So there's something about starting with a set of eyes that's really freeing and um, inspires a lot of neat creativity. And I feel like, so if you, we did that, uh, we initially found these at um, a science museum, actually. They had like a kid's activity set up and the thing that they had were lots of collage materials and these stickers that were eyes. Um, and it was so neat to see what everybody made and it's sort of open-ended. It's kind of just gets you started. Um, and so we'll just, you know, have, I'll put them out and they'll take two eyes or sometimes many more than two eyes <laughs> and put them on a piece of paper and then draw around it and all kinds of neat monsters and animals and all sorts of things come out of 
just that that little it's almost like a starter um, to a creative project. So um, I really like my eye stickers. They're not googly eyes. They're just regular eyes. Um, and they're really cool. Have you guys ever played with those? I haven't. No, I've seen them. And um, we always have googly eyes. So I didn't think that I needed both. But now I think maybe I ought to give them a try. Yeah, there's something neat about them. They're a little bit more... Um, you know, expressive than a googly eye because they have some of them have eyelashes. They're different. You know, there's like a couple of different drawings of different eyes on there. So they're, I think they're really neat. And speaking of googly eyes, my um, three-year-old, um, two weeks ago, she had, came up from camp with a, um, a project she made with googly eyes and then uh, was on her own for just a little while uh, while I was busy cooking and took a googly eye off her project and put it up her nose. Um, and it was really far up her nose and we had to go to the emergency room to have it removed. So, goodness. Um, yeah. Have you guys, have you guys had this emergency, um, art experiences with kids? That may be a first. <laughs> so Luckily, when we got there, the, the, um, doctor was like, oh, we see this all the time. <laughs> really? Yes. <laughs> hmm. My brother did that with a bean once, apparently, and, you know, beans swell, so it was a bit harder to get out. Oh, my gosh. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. All right. So, anyway, FYI on the googly eyes. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. So, um, all right. So, I wanted to go back to you, Amy, and I want to talk about... Um, you do something that I do all the time that I think is really brilliant, and I actually tell my adult students this. You buy old sheets and use them to make muslins. So tell me about that. Yes. they. Um, that's how I, every time I buy, like, a new pattern and I want to try to make myself, like, a new dress especially, I am really worried about cutting into my $12 a yard fabric. Um, and so... I just start making, started making things out of sheets. And the reason I like to make it out of sheets, especially cute sheets, is that if it works out for you, you can continue to wear it. So um, I have a lot of dresses made from sheets. And then I'll go and I'll make it again and I'll tweak it and I'll make it in my, my super cute fabric. Um, but I also found that sheets are great for working with kids because, um, once again, I don't want to spend a ton of money on sometimes these projects, but the kids want to make like wedding dresses or like who knows what, these crazy capes and things like that. But if I buy sheets for a dollar at the thrift store and wash them really well um, or garage sale and send them on their merry way, they have yards of fabric to create with. So they wrap them around themselves or they'll make, um, we've made a lot of puppet show theaters with them, um, We'll make all sorts of things with them. So that's kind of my go-to fabric, especially when I'm teaching a camp and I'm kind of letting it be free form in terms of what they're able to make. And they love it because the patterns you can find and the colors and the yardage is just incredible out there. Um, but I do use a lot of sheets for myself as well. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, I think it kind of speaks to this idea of plenty like sometimes when materials are scarce or, you know, you've been told they're expensive, um, you kind of feel creatively inhibited, but yes. when you just have a ton of it, um, you're more free to kind of make mistakes or if it doesn't work out, you can throw it away. And, um, even as adults, I feel like that having plenty of something 
can sometimes be the ticket to being more creative. Yeah, I never actually thought of it that way, but that's exactly what it is. I can totally feel free. I mean, I ended up making this super cute dress like a couple of weeks ago because I really wanted to try to make one with a bodice, and I never had really made like a fitted dress. And I pulled out a sheet that had been my grandmother's that I loved um, and took a chance on it. And now it's so cute, you know, but I felt very free in making it, um, and ended up making the top more than once, but I had plenty of fabric. So you're right. It just, it lets you kind of be creative and be brave maybe in what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. I had an incident, um, a couple of months ago, I ordered a really big lot wholesale of safety eyes. And prior to then I would only use a few safety eyes like I had just a few precious ones that I was kind of hoarding, you know, cause I, I don't know why I just would have like <laughs> in each size and I would, you know, buy like a pair in each size and that's all I had. And so it was like, if I was going to use them, it really had to be for the right project, you know, it was like pressure. Um, yes. so I ordered this gigantic box and now I feel so free. Like if I, you know, use them on a prototype or I use them on what I think is going to be the final sample. And then I fi- finish and I'm like, mm, I still have some tweaks to make on this. I'm going to have to throw this one away. I feel like, all right, whatever. It's okay. Like, <laughs> um, and somehow getting like a million safety eyes just really was so freeing to me. <laughs> it sounds bizarre, but it, it is totally true. Um, I think plenty is useful for creativity. So, um, so, Jean, you wanted to talk about a book that I, I just looked up after you recommended it to me, and it looks so good. It's the Tinker Lab book by Rochelle Dorley. Yes, um, Raquel. Oh, I'm sorry, Raquel. Dorley, yeah. Um, it is a wonderful book about for, for kids and families um, about inspiring creativity through... Uh, through tinkering and experimenting and, and using that sort of as a, a way of living and learning, um, make, making experimenting um, a priority in, in any area like art, science, cooking, construction, um, as a way to, to raise creative kids, to raise the next generation um, to be creative. Uh, and to to be able to think for themselves, and um, I just think it's a brilliant book. And she has a blog as well, also called Tinker Lab, which looks fantastic. Um, yeah. I'm going to subscribe to it. I had heard of it before, but for some reason I wasn't subscribing. And I was looking there this morning, and there's a project that immediately, of course, caught my eye, where you take apart a stuffed animal, like a commercially made stuffed animal, and <laughs> see what's inside of it. Like just cut it apart and take out the stuffing and take off the, you know, just take the arms off and the legs off and see how it's all made. And then think about using some of those pieces to make something new. Right. Cool. Yeah. And she does that with other things as well, taking things apart, which is a great way to learn about uh, everything around us um, for kids as, as well as adults. Yeah, I think about my brother used to take apart like every electronic thing in our house as a kid, um, much to my parents' dismay, but it is a really good way to learn like how it's all wired together. 
mm-hmm. and be creative and make new things. And um, Jean, I also wanted to make sure we talked about magnetic tiles because I know you're recently obsessed with magnetic tiles and we have them too. We have Magnetile brand and it is our favorite toy. Um, so just tell us a little bit about the magnetic tiles you have and how your kids use them. I have to say it's it's our favorite toy as well. It's the the toy that gets the used used the most inside um, our house over and over again. Every, we've had them for um, seven months now, and they get used almost every day in so many different ways. Um, we don't have the magnetiles. We have um, two other sets, two different brands. One is the Building Brilliance um, Magnetic Shapes, which is sold by Discount School Supply. And then we also have one called Picasso Tiles, which I ordered um, through Amazon. And both of them, they work together just fine. I don't know about other brands, but I imagine all the different brands are fairly comparable. Um, But they're great for open-ended building and creative play. Um, We use ours... Um, the kids use them to to build things like towers and barns for the for the animal toy animals and such. But they also use them on the fridge um, or to create shape patterns or roads. Um, they use them in the window as uh, like a stained glass. Use them on the light table, um, and our light table is just a just a transparent um, plastic storage box with a, a a string of Christmas lights in it. Um, We've used them in the sandbox and in the bathtub. They are a bit expensive. They are. And I've had parents talk about that, like the, it's been a barrier to them getting them. Um, but they are used so much that I think it's worth it if you can figure it out. And I have heard from um, some of my readers who said that they have have had a set of mag- magnetic tiles that have been in use um, pretty much nonstop for like seven years and multiple kids multiple ages and and still are in use yes and i'm one of those people because yeah. we first got them when my oldest daughter was two and she's 10 now and they are still in use and all three kids who are 10 8 and 3 all still think they're great all can play with them independently so just to be clear they're like um they come in different um shapes different geometric shapes but they're like two or three inches by you know two or three inches and they're they're squares there's rectangles there's um triangles and Ours actually has like a little base that is a base of a car, so you can build on that and make a car out of it. Um, and it holds some weight, but if you put a lot, like they like to put their little figurines inside there. Okay, you put a lot here. of figurines in there, it'll collapse. So there's a little bit of physics going on, like how can you make this shape sturdy? Um, and also, I so I, I'm on a listserv of moms in my town. Um, mm-hmm. There's like 500 moms on this listserv, and periodically without fail like every two or three months there'll be a mom on there like desperate for more magnetiles (laughs) because it is I don't know how much they run but it's like 60 or 70 dollars for a good size box of them right Um, and so if if you don't want yours anymore (laughs) there's a secondary market uh, at least where I live for them because they are a really good toy so it's like a special Christmas present something like that Yeah, definitely. And, you know, sometimes I buy things like the other day, um, I bought these, um, geodes for the kids to break open and because they were so into breaking open rocks at the time. And so I got these geodes and they, they were wonderful, but they had 
they were all broken open within like an hour maybe. And so, yes, it was fun, but that wasn't money that really lasted, you know, it wasn't a, a, a toy or a product that, that money didn't go very far. Right. Um, whereas with the magnetic tiles, they cost more, but they last so long and are used so often and um, in so many different ways that I think it's well worth it. Yeah, they're like blocks in that way. Right, exactly. Totally. Um, well, I think we're headed up against time, but this has been such an interesting and informative and fun conversation about making art and craft with kids. So. Amy and Jean, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Walsh and Apps podcast. Thank, thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you for having us. You're welcome. Um, you've been listening to the Walsh and Apps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg, and I invite you to visit my blog, walshingapps.com, where you'll find helpful information for creative entrepreneurs, as well as tutorials and patterns for making stuffed animals and dolls. If you enjoy the show, tell us about it.